Well, hello and welcome to a most unexpected virtual legality. Happy New Year. It is January 1st, 2019. I hope all of you are having a wonderful holiday season and celebrating with friends and family today. Uh, as I said, this is an unexpected virtual legality and I did not anticipate uh, making one today on New Year's Day. But uh, as of last night, uh, some very interesting legal wrangling uh, in a story that was really percolating throughout 2018 has, has come to pass. Uh, and I want to talk about it with you all a little bit. Now, before I do, uh, this particular video has a number of disclaimers to add to it. Like every other video I do, uh, all of these are for information or educational purposes only. None of these should be taken as legal advice. None of these should be taken as uh, legal specifics on any problem you might personally be facing or even the problem specific to what we're talking about today. But in this particular video, it's even more important uh, that, that you heed that disclaimer as we're going to be talking a little bit about Stardock, uh, which if you know where I uh, am located in Northville, Michigan, is essentially right down the street from me. And uh, for in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I have many personal and professional contacts uh, with Stardock and with Stardockians. I have uh, gone to uh, lunch and other meals uh, with their CEO, Brad Wardell, and, and other uh, folks at Stardock many, many times. I have uh, many good feelings about uh, a lot of them. I think they're very dedicated to their craft and working uh, very hard to make good software and good games uh, for, for people uh, in America and, and around the world. Um, so with that out of the way, uh, you can interpret that as you like. I don't think that changes any bit of this analysis. I don't think that makes me biased for what we're about to discuss, uh, but you might. Uh, and that's why I like to disclose those things. I have long been a fan of Stardock's work, going back to Galactic Civilizations and some of their other games that I have played, much like a number of the other publishers and developers that I talk about in this series. Uh, whether or not they've got legal issues, legal concerns, or, or other kinds of uh, business uh, issues that I discuss on, on this YouTube channel, it doesn't mean one way or the other whether I like their games or whether I don't. But in the case of Stardock, um, I do. Uh, I do like uh, Galactic Civilizations. If you saw my Game of the Year uh, countdown, I was very fond of their new game this last year, uh, Star Control Origins. And... Uh, last night, uh, news started uh, filtering around the internet of a very, very unusual application of uh, the DMCA, the Digital Millennial Copyright Act, uh, and the way takedowns work. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today is uh, how the whole process works, what has happened with Stardock and Star Control Origins over the, the past couple days, uh, whether or not that action is justified. And sometimes I forget to mute my phone, as, as I'm sure some of you do in your meetings as well, uh, whether or not that action is justified and um, what, what, I, what I think about it in general. So without further ado, let's, let's dive into some of this stuff. Um, so yesterday, uh, Brad Wardell uh, popped on to the Star Control Origins Steam forums. Uh, and told everyone that Star Control Origins will be coming down. It will be taken down from Steam um, and the reasons for that. He said, we have received news today that Paul Reich III and Fred Ford, uh, who if you are not familiar with the Star Control series, and I can't hardly blame you, though it's one of my favorites, it is uh, long in the tooth. It hasn't been around for a number of years. Uh, but uh, Reich and Ford uh, are the, uh, the main... Uh, 
contributors to Star Control 2, which is really where the, the series got popular. It's, it's my favorite game of all time. Uh, and they were uh, independent contractors for, I believe at the time, Accolade. Um, and, and made Star Control 2 in uh, 1992 and was ported in 1994. Um, and uh, they have been getting into an ever more pitched battle with Stardock, who uh, purchased certain rights to the Star Control franchise, which we will discuss in a little bit, um, back in, I believe, 2013, out of a bankruptcy auction from, uh, from Atari. So when, when a company goes bankrupt... They have to sell their assets to try to pay their creditors, and one of those assets was whatever they held in Star Control. So they sold, Atari sold everything that they had in Star Control over to Stardock at that time, and some of the debate in 2017 and 2018, and clearly now going into 2019, is what that whole uh, bundle of rights that Atari had to sell represented as against whatever rights uh, Reach and Ford retained in, in Star, Control, Star Control 2 uh, in particular. Um, so he says uh, they've issued a DMC takedown notice, which we're going to talk about a little bit, to Valve to take down Star Control Origins. And we're going to go into that letter as well in just a second. As some of you may know, there's a legal dispute between Stardock and Rishan Ford regarding the trademarks and copyrights pertaining to Star Control. You can read the history here. We're not going to go into that link so much. I, I think it is useful if you want to click on that link. Um, and I'll try to put these, these links that we're going to use today in the description. If you want to click on that, I think it is useful to kind of get the, uh, the feel uh, for Stardock's position on things, what they think they bought, the communications they had uh, with Reish and Ford, who right now, by the way, are, I think, either co-CEOs or other management level uh, positions at Toys for Bob, uh, who made uh, another of my uh, really favorite games of the year last year, which was the, the Spyro Reignited trilogy, the, uh, the remastering or reinvention uh, of the, the Spyro trilogy, uh, which is only funny there because, of course, they made it for Activision and Toys for Bob uh, in a license that Activision bought to Spyro Derivative Works uh, from Insomniac, who were the original owners there. So you also have them essentially spending their year making a, uh, making a game that is completely related to a previous game and, and the intellectual property licenses and the contracts uh, that go along with that, uh, which isn't to say that their their contracts aren't great and these contracts that Stardock has aren't bad. We don't have the, the necessary optics to really evaluate those on that level, but what we can talk about is essentially abuse of uh, statutory systems uh, like the DMCA and, and whether or not how this is being used right here uh, is fair. And we're going to talk about it, but obviously, as you can tell from the fact that I felt compelled to make this video, I think there are problems with what Reach and Ford are doing here. Um, uh, Mr. Wardell then goes on and says, unfortunately, rather than relying on the legal system to resolve this, they have chosen to bypass it by issuing vague DMC takedown notices to Steam and GOG, uh, which is uh, good old games. Um, Steam and GOG both have a policy of taking down content that received DMC notices regardless of the merits of the claims. Now, that's an interesting sentence. They do have that policy. We're going to talk about how the legal system essentially mandates that they have that policy for good business purposes. Um, we talk a lot about the, on this channel about the fiduciary responsibilities of officers and directors of companies, but the way the Copyright Act in the U.S. is, is built now with Section 512 in particular, you would be a fool if you're a digital content provider to not have a policy to essentially take down something when told to do so with a takedown notice that's compliant with the DMCA because that gives you a safe harbor. But we're going to get into that in just a second. To my knowledge, never in the history of our industry has anyone attempted to use the DMC system to take down a shipping game before. For example, when PUBG sued Fortnite for copyright infringement, they didn't try to take Fortnite down with a DMCA notice. 
Uh, and yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. Uh, I don't pretend to have full knowledge of every single claim or takedown notice that's been in the industry or outside of the industry uh, since the DMC was first put into place. But I can't recall, in, in my experience, this happening before, and it certainly is novel, and it certainly is dangerous uh, insofar as the way the, the, the copyright structure is built is to allow someone to essentially have this takedown notice to cost uh, a company a significant amount of sales. And certainly, though they waited till the end of the year to do this with respect to Star Control Origins, you can imagine hypotheticals in the future where somebody that is incented by what is happening in this particular case to put out a DMCA notice like PUBG uh, or the Fortnite battle, uh, maybe in the first week of, of sales. Uh, there's a 10-day timer uh, that runs with the DMCA, but there's also marketing pushes and a lot of money expended to get a big burst of attention for a game when it initially releases. So you can imagine if this kind of thing is allowed to persist and there aren't really any penalties for uh, Rish and Ford or, or other people that kind of go down this road, that that could cause its own problems in terms of bad faith use of the DMCA or, or maybe not even bad faith, but just kind of ambiguous faith about whether or not they have an infringement claim to just mess up somebody's day who has maybe put millions behind uh, advertising in the lead up to a, a launch, issue that notice at the, as the launch happens and get their te their first ten days wiped off the map, um, and that's that's a potential problem. And that's the way I look at law. That's the way I look at statutes. That's the way I look at how people use them. Uh, is that everybody's got their own incentives, and we want to make sure that the rules are in place and are in a in a fashion that don't incentivize people to even kind of think of bad acts, um, because. People are going to be uh, error prone. They're going to make mistakes. And uh, this might be a situation where a convincing lawyer uh, gets in front of Reese and Ford and says, hey, you know, we can do this. It's, it's unlikely to cause penalties to you. And, and we can give them a bad day, especially at the end of the year here where it's going to go around the holidays and, and maybe some of the, uh, the people at Valve or the filing staff uh, at, at the various companies aren't fully in place. And you can maybe get even a longer delay than you might otherwise get. Uh, for those not familiar with copyright law, you cannot copyright ideas, individual or short phrases, concepts, mechanics, game designs, etc. Uh, that's right. We're, we're going to get into it more broadly uh, when we talk about the, the Copyright Act in particular here. Um, but the overall notion is that you can't copyright the, the, the essence, the concept of something. That's why uh, chess exists, but back in the day, battle chess also existed. You can take the rules of a game and you can apply them in a new way and that's not infringement on the nature of, of chess uh, because it's not something that can be copyrighted. Um, Star Control Origins does not contain any copyrighted work of Reacher Ford. We spent five years working on it, making our own game. It very much plays like you would expect a Star Control game, but that has nothing to do with copyright. Yeah, I, I think the phrase I used in my video was that it's a spiritual successor. Uh, you won't be confused by the fact that it is clearly um, emblematic of the experience that you have playing Star Control 2. Uh, but in my experience, outside of potentially the, the look of some aliens who I don't believe use any of the same names uh, as appeared in Star Control 2 and are generally generic type figures such as, um, uh, you know, the, the, the greys in X-Files type aliens, uh, that there's anything even really close to uh, direct copyright infringement. Now, there could be something buried in the code. There could be something I didn't find. Star Control Origins is a big game. Uh, but I didn't experience that in my playthroughs uh, of that of that title. Uh, Stardock, for the record, owns the trademark to Star Control 2 and the copyright to Star Control 3, and Star Control Origins has nothing to do with Reach and Ford. 
Valve assures us that anyone who's already bought the game should be able to continue to play it. Unfortunately, without the income from Star Control Origin, Star, uh, Stardock will have to lay off some of the men and women who are assigned to the game. We will do our very best to continue to support the game, and hopefully Star Control Origins will return as soon as possible. So that's the state of play as of last night. As I'm making this video, you can see that that post is tagged with 18 hours ago. I think the next best thing to look at is what was issued as the takedown notice. So we do have an image here that Mr. Wardell has provided of the takedown notice that was sent to uh, GOG. Uh, where, so this is from a lawyer. It says, I represent Rishan Ford uh, under 512 of the DMCA. Here's a notice. Uh, we have the rights to uh, certain exclusive copyrights to Star Control and Star Control 2, originally released in 1990 and 1992. Uh, copyright owners also own similar copyrights in Star Control 3 with respect to those materials present in Star Control and Star Control 2. Uh, the premise being that uh, the makers of Star Control 3 either got permission from or sought licensing from aspects of that game that were included in Star Control 2. Star Control 3, for those of you who don't know, borrows essentially the same uh, characters and races as Star Control 2 and puts them in a different uh, in different timeline. Uh, Stardock Systems claims to be the assignee for the name Star Control, uh, but is not authorized to publish, reproduce, prepare derivative works based on or distribute the works. The following is a list of infringing materials uh, at which such materials are displayed and accessible on the service. So this is the things that you have to take down Star Control Origins. So they say they own Star Control, Star Control 2. Uh, they're not allowed to make derivative works from those things. Star Control Origins is a derivative work, so you have to take it down. Uh, but as you can see, this was described as vague uh, by Mr. Wardell, and it is. Uh, there's really no uh, line drawn from we own Star Control 2 to Star Control Origins is the same thing. Uh, and certainly... The one line that you could draw is that Stardock doesn't own the rights to the name Star Control, but that's the line they can't draw because that's the one that has the clearest documentary evidence uh, that they do. Um, you see here that they also claim that copyright owners have a good faith belief that use of the works in the, uh, in the materials described in this letter is not authorized. Um, so good faith belief is an important requirement of the DMCA and the way these notices work. As you can imagine, if you just had no belief at all, you could contact uh, Steam and say they have to take down Assassin's Creed Odyssey because you have a copyright in Assassin's Creed uh, and you just haven't enforced it for the last 10 years. But you're enforcing it now. And as we talked about when we talked about the post, the Copyright Act basically incentivizes these companies to take down at the first instance of anybody claiming it and let the, let the parties worry about it after the takedown happens. You could do that if there wasn't a good faith requirement. Um, it, because there is a good faith requirement, uh, there is uh, some tampering of malicious and abusive use of the DMCA that you shouldn't be just trying to create problems for someone else if you have not even an inkling of a remote possibility that you own the copyright. Now, that's kind of an idealistic way of looking at the world. Certainly, folks have been abusing the DMCA uh, for a long, long time. Anybody that has a YouTube channel, like myself, can tell you that there are some very specious claims on what constitutes copyrightable or protected property that pops up in my videos. I could show you the list of my YouTube channel and how many have copyright notices on them uh, that uh, are, are illegitimate. Now, I don't care because I'm not monetizing this channel, uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see, and it could certainly uh, create a lot of problems for someone who's maybe depending on content creation of this type um, for their livelihood. And so uh, 
the DMCA is maybe a nice idea. We're going to talk about it at length here going forward, uh, but it does have its own problems, as any statute that is created by human beings or anything else created by human beings always does. Uh, but we talked a little bit when I was going through this letter about the fact that they can't claim that Star Stardock doesn't own the Star Control name. Uh, that's because that was really a, a very public uh, purchase, and there's really not a great way to dispute this, to my knowledge. Um, so we look back at uh, this Ars Technica article in July 2013. Stardock acquires Star Control rights in fire sale plans reboot. So this is back in 2013. This is public to everyone. This is not the only story that was published on this. This is a major deal for folks of my, um, uh, let's call it vintage, who really loved uh, Star Control and uh, continued to hope for uh, a brand revival of the series and got one in Star Control Origins. Uh, this says, Stardock Entertainment has acquired the rights to the Star Control franchise in the ongoing sell-off resulting from Atari's bankruptcy filing. Stardock's producer of the popular space strategy game Sins of a Solar Empire and Galactic Civilizations 1 and 2 has announced that it intends to use the rights to produce a new Star Control game, reviving a series that hasn't seen a proper sequel since 1996. According to a press release issued by Stardock, the company will begin work on the game this year, 2013, with a release date to be determined. The Star Control series, and Star Control 2 in particular, is an enormously important part of the PC gaming canon. The games are the reincarnation and true successors of the earlier Starflight series, and most modern space adventure games take at least some of their gameplay and humor elements from them, including Mass Effect, which director Casey Hudson has directly attributed to Starflight. At first blush, the news of Stardock's acquisition seems to be excellent for fans of space exploration games. Uh, however, Stardock doesn't have a great deal of experience in this. And then we get um, uh, Brad's comments uh, at the time. It won't be a continuation, but more akin to a revisit, a la XCOM, no hyphen, using Star Control 2 as the inspiration and start back before the Earthlings were in any kind of slave shield, which is the primary plot of Star Control 2. That's not a spoiler. You get that right at the beginning. Uh, we'll be talking more about our plans as we go forward. We won't be making any changes to the, to the existing Star Control games. We'd see later, if you, if you want to dive into what Stardock claims and some of the letters uh, that they've got between them and Reach and Ford, I, I recommend it. It's interesting stuff. But you'll see what they claim that they own is uh, that Atari had the rights to publish the Star Control games that they got from Accolade, so the existing Star Control 1 and 2 and 3, and that they have the rights to the name and some of the stuff that they created, but that wasn't specifically necessarily created in Star Con uh, that, that wasn't created just for Star Control 2. So uh, we talked about this when we talked about the Raimi suit and Spider-Man and intellectual property rights, but the video game industry has not always been great and, and really isn't great now necessarily at properly documenting where the intellectual property bundle of rights lands. So especially back in the early 90s, the late 80s, you had essentially contractors come in, they made something. Was it a work made for hire for the company? Did they have their own intellectual property publishing rights that were licensed to the company that reverted back to them? All of these various different questions have resulted in things now where you're looking at revivals and reboots and things that could make somebody money that aren't being able to be made because it's not clear exactly who owns the rights. And what you don't want to have happen is essentially what's happening right now with Star Control Origins, which is, okay, I think I have all the rights. Someone has maybe kind of a nebulous right, but we think we're okay. We're exchanging emails. Everybody's friendly. I, I spend five years of investment making this thing, and then I release it. And then everybody comes out of the woodwork. Everybody that has a nebulous right, everybody that has an ambiguous right to something that might have gone into the game. And I'm not saying anything with respect to whether Star Control Origins does that. I lean towards that, the fact that it doesn't. Uh, but I think the courts are going to settle this to some extent. Um, that once you've 
invested that money and put it into that, that's when people say, hey, this lottery ticket that I had that wasn't worth anything before you made that investment now maybe is worth something, so I'd like to cash in. Um, and you see that with games across the spectrum. This is not unique to Stardock. This is not unique to Star Control. Uh, one of my favorite articles on this topic, and I didn't bring it up here, but maybe I'll link it in the description, is a Kotaku article about why we can't get a revival of No One Lives Forever, uh, which is one of the uh, really more entertaining first-person shooter story-based uh, games that was released on PC in the in the 90s. Uh, and the revival can't happen essentially because three different interest uh, holders claim to have full rights to the game. And once you get into that situation, unless you can get everybody to release and acknowledge and, and say here are what the rights are, which can be a very costly, very expensive process on the back of selling a game that you don't know whether it's going to make money, until you get those rights, it doesn't make sense to go and put the investment in to making that revival uh, because someone could later claim infringement, could ask for money, could put in a DMCA takedown notice like we're seeing today, and that prevents things from happening. So in an ideal world, hopefully the industry is right now having uh, lawyers uh, and contract parties more cognizant of the fact that they have to keep track of the intellectual property to avoid situations like this when we've got ho uh, holographic eyeball contact lenses that we can get a remake of uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey or uh, Astrobot directly into our skulls that the, they've thought about the intellectual property rights for 2030 correctly right now so that we can get that uh, hopefully done. Um, but that's a bit of an aside to... The fact that at the time of 2013, um, Brad uh, Wardell doesn't think that they have the rights to use the Star Control 2 stuff. Uh, and that's really never been disputed as far as I've seen from the Stardock side of things. Uh, we won't be making any changes to the existing Star Control games. And Atari doesn't actually own the copyright on Star Control 1 or 2. So it's not like one could make a Star Control 2 HD or what have you without a license from Paul Reich. And even if we did have rights to Star Control 1 or 2, I wouldn't touch them without his blessing. Uh, Mr. Wardell's a fan of Star Control 2, uh, and uh, at least as he has presented himself, uh, he has uh, always been interested in, in trying to keep them happy with respect to what was or wasn't used in Star Control 2. Now, that's changed somewhat since the lawsuit started, um, but you can see even at 2013, they thought Atari uh, had certain rights to sell, in particular the Star Control name. They wanted to attach to something, so they took the Star Control name, they attached it to a subtitle Origins, and then they built it from the ground up. Like I said, I, I don't recognize anything particular uh, in terms of names or races uh, from Star Control 2 put into Star Control Origins. Again, I can't say that they aren't there because it is a big world, uh, and there are some uh, what I would call uh, funny, jokey asides that you can read as references, perhaps, uh, to Star Control 2, but they're not anything that would rise to the level of derivative works to me. Again, speculative uh, video uh, blogs are not uh, legal advice. Um, but this has always really been Stardock's stance. That hasn't changed. Uh, what has changed is the fact that Reach <clears throat> and Ford aren't happy with Star Control Origins uh, really existing, and certainly some of the some of the tenor of the relationship that has developed uh, from there. So that's kind of the background, which uh, is leading to be one of the longer videos that I've done here. But let's talk about what is uh, copyright and what's happened here and why it's happened in this fashion. And we'll try to go through this pretty quickly. Uh, but whenever you're reading statutes, whenever you're reading code, uh, it winds up being a little rabbit hole. So I'll tell you, I've got four separate things I want to show you with how the Copyright Act works and how it works together. And uh, I think that that's, uh, that's going to be a, a useful 
uh, a useful uh, research uh, break as we talk about what the DMCA means, why this has happened, why it makes sense for Steam and GOG to take it down immediately, and, and why this maybe doesn't rise to the level of the way this should be used and why it could pre uh, present a, a bad precedent in the future. So let's just talk about copyright in general, um, <clears throat> and in particular, infringement of copyright. Anyone who violates any of the exclusive rights of the copyright owner, as provided in these other sections, we'll talk about those in a second, or who imports copies or phono records into the United States in violation of a, a later section, and phono records is a great reference here. Uh, the, the Copyright Act was written a while ago. Uh, it is not most up to speed on uh, various technological elements of our society. In general, the courts read these various references to be applicable to whatever the modern equivalent is of what was being discussed in the initial Copyright Act, with some exceptions, but that's generally how they, they read it. So phono records, there, there you go. Uh, whoever does that, whoever violates the exclusive rights of a copyright owner is an infringer of the copyright or right of the author, as the case may be, which is a bit tautological if you don't know the definitions, if you don't know the sections, if you're not a lawyer. Anyone who violates their rights is a violator of rights. So maybe not the most helpful provision, but it is a necessary provision in the law. There always has to be a sentence somewhere that says, uh, if you violate their rights, you're a violator of the rights so that we can impose criminal sanctions or, or other fines or penalties on you. has to be that sentence, even if it isn't terribly useful in, in English. So the most important part of this is what, what are the rights of a copyright owner? What are, we, what are we even talking about here? And you've certainly heard me talk about intellectual property rights and copyright rights, uh, copyright rights a little bit. Um, but let's just look at the overall category. So this is the section that's referenced in the, in the provision that we just read. So this is section 102. The owner of a copyright under this title has the exclusive rights to do and authorize. They can license, they can give someone else permission to do any of these things. To reproduce the stuff, to prepare derivative works on the stuff. And we're going to talk about derivative works, so yes we are. To distribute copies of the stuff for either sale or transfer. Uh, in the case of literary, musical, dramatic, and choreographic works, uh, motion pictures, audiovisual, uh, to perform the copyrighted works publicly. Uh, in the case of those same uh, categories of creative uh, works, to display them publicly. Uh, and in the case of sound recordings, to perform them by means of digital audio transmission, put them on the radio, uh, or to otherwise send them along. Uh, so what we're talking about here is a bundle of rights that essentially says, if I'm the copyright holder... You can't reproduce this thing on your own. You can't create things that are based on this thing on your own. You can't uh, show it publicly. You can't put it on a movie screen. You can't distribute it. You can't sell it. That's that's the bundle of rights that a copyright holder holds. And what we've got in this fight with Stardock and Reish and Ford is uh, a, a essentially a discussion about what rights Reish and Ford hold. And they claim that they have these rights, as you could see in that letter, to Star Control and Star Control 2, and that Star Control Origins is a derivative work on Star Control 2. The problem that they've got is that derivative work has a very specific meaning. Uh, and that meaning is, uh, and this is also from the Copyright Act, this is earlier in the Copyright Act because lawyers like to make things as complicated as possible to read. Although, if I can give a pro tip to reading a statute, the definitions are usually at the front, and if you wind up seeing a term that you don't need, uh, you don't understand, uh, you might want to go back up to the front and see if they've given you any definition. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It all depends on the statute. 
A derivative work is a work based uh, upon one or more pre-existing works, such as a translation, musical arrangement, dramatization, fictionalization, motion picture version, sound recording, art reproduction, abridgment, condensation, or any other form in which a work may be recast, transformed, or adapted. Now, uh, lawyers love making big, long lists of things that kind of overlap each other or copy each other and aren't terribly useful in, in a big group. Uh, but what is most important to take out of the definition of derivative work is the actual derivation feature. Uh, as Mr. Wardell talked about in his uh, post, and as we've talked about in the past, uh, when we're talking about inspired fan games or other intellectual property in the video game industry or elsewise, um, to be a derivative work is a somewhat ambiguous kind of concept. It's a somewhat nebulous area. But in general, it has to take something out of something that's existing and change it. It has to recast it. It has to transform it. It has to adapt it. You see those phrases in this section. What it isn't is uh, taking the concept of Star Control 2, where you've got a top-down view of a spaceship, and you travel around a galaxy, and you go and you visit different planets, and you collect different minerals, and you talk to different aliens, and saying, when we say we copyright Star Control 2, Anytime you do that from a top-down spaceship, you visit these aliens, you collect these minerals, that's a derivative work of our copyright. That is not how this works. So it's, it's fairly clear that if Star Control Origins were simply called um, Stardock Origins or something along those lines, uh, there would be essentially no fight here whatsoever. Or if there were a fight, it would be even more specious than the one is currently presented uh, under the DMC takedown notice. Uh, but... The only real claim that I see that they could potentially have is some kind of infringement based on some alien species, uh, some name, some some use of language that is taken essentially directly out of whole cloth from Star Control 2 because the overall concepting isn't the isn't isn't the same as as Star Control 2 in Star Control Origins and you can see why the law wouldn't want to penalize what Star Control Origins is. So taking a, taking aside the 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 name part of the thing the Copyright Act, the intellectual property protections in general under the Constitution, under the USPTO, under the statutes that the American legal system has put in place, is essentially designed to incentivize people to create things by allowing them this bundle of rights that they get when they have created this something so that they can make money off of it. So if you don't have that, if you, if you put something out there into the world and uh, someone else can just copy it with a bigger company with a thousand people and do it in two days and get a get a clone out there as fast as possible that is directly a copy of what you've made, then nobody is going to create anything because you can't make money off of what you're doing. Uh, and that's the that's the philosophy. You can disagree with the philosophy, but that's the philosophy of the American intellectual property protection system. So when we say derivative works are protected, that, that you can't make a derivative work off a copyright holder, it's not intended to say you can't make something else that maybe takes the premise of a copyrighted work and reworks it and, and thinks about it differently. As long as you're not taking the direct materials from that work, in general, we want to incentivize that as a society. That's the philosophy of the thing. So the Star Control Origins problem is actually kind of a typical first-year law case. What you know is this infringing? Is this a derivative work? And certainly, the gut reaction is is no. They spent five years investing in this thing. They have the Star Control name as best as anybody can tell. Even even Reese and Ford aren't claiming the Star Control name really, and they're not they're not bold enough to do that in the letter. They're claiming that they have certain copyright 
uh, in Star Control and Star Control 2. And even in that letter, they only refer to it as certain copyright without really going and delving into details, uh, which they don't really have to do under the takedown notice procedure, which is the very next thing we're going to talk about. Um, but they don't claim to have rights to the Star Control name. They can't claim those rights. And so Stardock has the Star Control name, put it on Star Control Origins, made a game that is absolutely 100% a spiritual successor to Star Control 2, but not to my eye, violative of anything in particular. Um, and not to their eye either, I don't think. You can look at the, the emails that they exchanged. They don't love that this happened. And you can empathize with that position. They don't love that they had licensed certain rights to Accolade that then got licensed to Atari, that they lost track of, that they lost the ability to control. They don't like that those then got sold in bankruptcy to Stardock. Maybe because they don't like Stardock, maybe because they just don't like to have their rights in another person's hands when they think they could have gotten them. Uh, certainly, part of this story is that Stardock claims they offered to sell them back to Reeshan Ford, and, and Reeshan Ford essentially said no. Um, and that's created a little bit more animus between the two sides. That doesn't really change the legal analysis, but it does give part of the background to the story. And so they want to control this thing because they don't like it. Uh, and that's that's a pretty common thing. I deal with my clients all the time. I'm sure you've seen in the news or if you're in the legal field or business field, you see with your clients all the time. Sometimes the, you just don't like the reality of the situation and you look for ways you look for ways to cause trouble for the reality and ways that hopefully don't result in legal penalties to you, which is how we arrive at the Digital Millennial Copyright Act. Um, so for those of you who don't know, that the DMCA was basically put in place because the internet was taking off. So this was 1998. The internet's taking off. You've got all these service providers. You've got forums. You've got all these internet uh, providers that are going to do these things on the internet, and they're super worried about the fact that they're collecting information, they're collecting data, they're collecting applications from users that they can't control, and they want to make sure that they don't have liability for those things because we like what the internet's doing, we like how it's growing, we like what it's becoming, but the internet service providers are these are where these big bundles of money live, and they want to make sure that they don't get sued. Um, so in particular, and this is a bigger act, so that, that's the shorter version of what we're concerned with uh, on our issue. If you are interested more in the DMCA, uh, there's some wonderful publications that the USPTO has put together, the Copyright Office has put together. You can talk about them, uh, and you can look at them, and, and there are certainly many, 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 many pages of academic and practical thought that have been made as to whether the DMC actually does what it's supposed to do and whether it's too abusive and whether the, the YouTubes and now Steams of the world are, are too reactive to what are uh, very specious claims made against them. But here is what... Steam is looking at. Here's what GOG is looking at. A service provider, that's Steam and GOG, shall not be liable for monetary relief. They can't get sued. They can't be sued for damages. They can't pay other people money, except as provided later on, uh, for infringement of copyright by reason of the storage at the direction of a user of material that resides on their system. If, some, some other stuff. So, this is what we call a safe harbor. Section 512C1 says, all right, if you follow these rules, which we're going to go over, then you can't get sued. You can't, even if there's an infringement uh, on copyright of a user that's put something on your system, you can't get sued if you didn't have actual knowledge that was infringing. So as long as they don't send you an email that says, hey, I stole this, but if you could put it up, that would be great. All right, that's bad. You're going to get sued if that happens. In the absence of such actual knowledge, is not aware of facts or circumstances from which infringing activity is apparent. 
so you don't see in the news uh, for the last three days that uh, person X has stolen all of the source code of this thing and is now asking to put it on your service. Then the law can say, well, you should have had a reasonable belief that that guy that says that the source code fell off the back of a truck probably isn't on the up and up. So we're still going to nab you. So if you have actual knowledge, we're going to nab you. If you have what we would consider a reasonable uh, factual basis to have such knowledge, you can't just claim to stick your head in the sand and that you didn't actually knowledge, have that knowledge. Upon obtaining such knowledge or awareness, so this is after the fact, someone tells you that you act expeditiously to remove or disable access to the material. So C1A3 is what we're particularly concerned with here. When you get told that there's an infringement, if you act expeditiously to remove the thing, hey, I didn't know, now I know, I'm getting rid of it as fast as possible, you can't be sued. That's why Steam's policies, that's why GOG's policies, that's why YouTube's policies, that's why everybody else's policies are, hey, when I get a compliant DMC takedown no- DMCA takedown notice, I remove the stuff expeditiously because that keeps me from getting sued regardless of what I think of what you claimed. That's on you. That's not on me. And so that's... This is how you see laws create second-order functions. This law, this the way this is written, essentially mandates that all of these companies act in that way because otherwise they're being stupid. Otherwise they're being silly and putting their, their money at risk. Now, sometimes you see claims that are so specious and would otherwise harm the overall business of one of these service providers that then they decide to, to dig in their heels. But 99% of the time, it makes sense to say, oh, I got a takedown notice. Okay, uh, then, then I'm going to get rid of it. Um, you see that followed up on in C here. Upon notification of claimed infringement as described in paragraph three, responds expeditiously to remove or disable access to that material that is claimed to be infringing or to be subject of infringing activity. So not only do you not get, uh, not only do you have legal issues, you make sure that you take them, you do, you do actually take them down expeditiously. So again, we have some doubling up here. If you haven't d- dived deep into a statute, if you haven't gone to law school, there's, there's a lot of this stuff. Uh, laws are not written the most elegantly and efficiently as you might hope. They're not as efficient as some code uh, that, you see in, that you see in video games or other, uh, other software programs. Um, going a little bit deeper here, we talk about what are the elements of notification. So this is the actual description of a DMC takedown. So if you're going to have a legitimate DMC takedown, a DMCA takedown notice, I'm forgetting that A. It just, it just apply an act at the end of DMC every time, uh, but it's DMCA. To be effective under this subsection, a notification of claimed infringement must be a written communication provided to the designated agent of a service provider that includes substantially the following. You need it to be signed. You need to identify the copyrighted work claimed to have been infringed, so in this case, Star Control Origins. Identification of the material that is claimed to be infringing or to be the subject of infringing activity and that is to be removed or access to which is to be disabled. Information reasonably sufficient to permit the service provider to contact to contact the complaining party, so telling who's the infringer. A statement that the complaining party has a good faith belief that use of the material in the manner complained of is not authorized by the copyright owner, its agent, or the law. Uh, so... Here we're talking about some maybe not the best legal drafting. So if we were to characterize what this provision is intended to do, it's intended to make sure that when you file that complaint, you have some notion of the fact that it's a legitimate complaint that needs to be taken down because there is some notion of infringement. What this provision actually says is that you have to have a good faith belief that Whatever's been complained of is not authorized, not that what you're complaining of is an infringement. 
So it's a technical angels on the head of a pin issue, but it does save lawyers and it does save potentially abusive parties from some hassle that they might otherwise be expected to incur. Because you can complain of whatever you want. Say it's infringement. And as long as you have a good faith belief that whatever you just complained of wasn't authorized, you satisfy this provision, which can't have been the intent, I would argue. Now, I wasn't the legislator in 1998. I wasn't a lawyer in 1998. Uh, but this was written, no doubt, out of committee, no doubt through a very extensive process of, of looking at these things and potentially haggling back and forth and red lines and, and amendments. Uh, but what you arrived at was the ability for folks to file DMC takedown notices that maybe aren't based on great infringement claims, but are uh, good faith belief that they didn't authorize the non-great infringement that they are claiming otherwise in the letter. So you've got a DMCA takedown notice like you've got in this case that probably is mostly compliant. And you've got a number of court cases that talk about the generalized good faith belief in the actual infringement. And the courts have been moving forward towards actually having that good faith requirement apply directly to your claims of infringement rather than just the authorization aspect. And we do have a couple of cases there. I think uh, Lens Universal, some other stuff that you can look up. I don't want to bog you down with too much case studies and other things, except for you to note that when we talk about these things, there are always a entire network of cases that are being discussed on most of these issues, especially important ones, and that there are uh, case law being developed uh, throughout the years that help to kind of clarify what these things do. So you do you are moving towards that good faith requirement. And I strongly suspect Stardock at bare minimum is going to have a good case to say, hey, we own the name. This isn't the same thing. This is an abuse uh, and you, you should get in trouble for it. Uh, moving down the line, uh, you see where the penalties have been imposed uh, in the, the DMCA, which is that any person who knowingly materially misrepresents under the section, section that material or activity is infringing, so what we just talked about, uh, or that material or activity was removed or disabled by mistake or misidentification, shall be liable for damages including attorney's fees. So this is, this is what is designed to say, all right, we've built this legal structure that could be abused. We can see that. We can see that somebody could come out of the woodwork. They could claim a takedown. They could hurt somebody's business, and we don't want that. So what do we say? We say any person that's lying, any person that's creating trouble solely to create trouble is going to be liable for damages. But we also want to weaken that. So, so the lawyer in me looks at this and says, oh, you see what I see there? Knowingly and materially. Those are two separate qualifiers designed to weaken the aspects of this penalty. <coughs> Excuse me. So when we see a knowing qualifier, that means you're not going to fall under this basket of penalties unless you knew you were doing something wrong. So if you have even kind of a remotest uh, concept of being able to say something is infringing, then we're probably not going to hold it against you under the statute because, hey, you didn't knowingly misrepresent. You maybe wound up misrepresenting because the thing actually wasn't infringing. We went through the court process. It's not infringing. Go away. But it was close enough. We can see that it was close enough that you weren't knowingly lying when you submitted your takedown notice, so we're not going to penalize you. And then the materiality qualifier, which is the materially word there, adds to that knowingly. So, okay, let's say you knowingly lied. Was that knowing lie actually a material misrepresentation or was it kind of immaterial? It was kind of a de minimis misrepresentation that didn't really change anything. 
Um, so here, I think we're definitely talking about materially uh, misrepresenting if that was found insofar as that they asked to take down the whole game, that this is a, there's really no other way to read this uh, in terms of whether it's material or not. The knowingly is a, is a good question. Um, they have claimed that they have these Star Control 2 rights. There are nebulous old contracts. Maybe there is something in there, a paragraph or two or a section or a termination clause uh, or even an indemnification clause that gives them the concept that they can make this claim. And, and I can't say that they're wrong sitting from here. I don't have those contracts in front of me. Uh, but this is designed to prevent people from saying just anything that they want and having these DMCA takedown notices. But it's not a great solution because of those qualifiers. And, and as lawyers, as legislators, this is one of those things where you say, all right, do we need both qualifiers? What happens if we just say any person who misre misrepresents? Uh, is that better? Is that worse? This is the kind of balancing act that your uh, legislatures are doing essentially every day, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, but it is an interesting uh, exercise because you can see it's essentially a line that you're setting in the sand and you can write that line incorrectly. You can, you can get a situation where it's too hard to do a DMCA takedown notice. So th there's a bunch of stolen uh, malware or uh, software that's put everywhere uh, and that's bad. Or you can put it too far on the other side of the line. And then it's way, way, way too easy to make a DMCA takedown notice. And you have people that are uh, getting sucked into <clears throat> taking down their software, taking down their content that maybe shouldn't be having to do that. And so it's a constant balancing act. And I can't rightly say that this is the right place to set it. I can say that it doesn't seem like the, the folks in this case, Reach and Ford, ha have a great case based on what we can see from articles, from what we can see from what they've said and from what Stardock said, that Stardock, uh, that Star Control Origins is in fact a derivative work of Star Control 2 or Star Control 1, although that's less of a case because Star Control 1 was essentially a different genre of game, such that a DMCA takedown notice is justified. But we can also see that based on how the Copyright Act reads, it makes total sense for Stephen Gogg to react to a notice that covers the bases of this act and, and remove remove the game when asked to do so. Um, moving forward, <clears throat> you see in G, this is where it says that the that Steam and GOG are not liable to Stardock for taking down something based on a correctly received notice uh, because that's, that's the way this whole process works is that they're not liable to be sued on uh, the infringer's uh, stand, uh, side of the thing and they're not liable to be sued uh, by the person that has been infringed upon. So they're this is designed to get those service providers, as long as they comply with this process, out of the, the, the legal crossfire. Uh, but they will be liable if they uh, fail to replace the removed material uh, after they get a counter notice from the claimed infringing party. So in this case, Stardock, that says, hey, we're not infringing, put it back. Uh, and when they get that notice, which presumably Stardock is either done or is in the process of doing at this point, uh, I'm not their lawyer on this, uh, but when they do that, then they will be liable if they don't put it back up unless they get notice from the originally claiming party that they have gone through and sought a court order to restrain uh, the subscriber from engaging in infringing activity. Now, the interesting part of this notion of the DMCA is so the way these takedown notices work, Reach and Ford, excuse me, Reach and Ford can say, take it down, Steam and GOG, take it down, and then they can file their court order asking to have it restrained 
and having not put back on the system. And in that way, they can essentially change their position of leverage from essentially uh, a game or any piece of software or content that is created that has one of these DMCA issues. They can essentially have it taken down first and then go through the court process. And only when a Stardock wins, if they win, can the game get put back on uh, the Steam or the GOG or whatever other service they're provided on versus the standard legal setup for one of these things is, okay, you've got an infringement. The infringing party says, all right, I'm going to sue to have it enjoined that they can't sell it, that they have to be removed from shelves. And then when I win, at least a preliminary action, then that's when the game gets removed. So we talk about this a lot on these videos. We talk about uh, this a lot in Help Us Out Hogue and some other things. But leverage is very important. So the state of the world, the default before the court acts is important. And you can see why right here which is if they can get the game taken down and then go through the court process, presumably what will happen right here is that Stardock will say, hey, no, we're not infringing, and then they have the option, but they could just seek a court order at that point, and essentially the game can stay off until the, the court makes its determination that Stardock is harmed by this and could be harmed for more than the 10 to 14-day period uh, just based on court uh, processes. If they get a court order in, it's January 1st right now, there's holidays abound. It's winter in, in Michigan or wherever else the court order might be sought. And who knows when it gets settled. Now, some some courts are going to act faster than others, and, and maybe this could get settled pretty quickly. But in general, as a lawyer, I have my doubts as to the efficacy or efficiency of any speedy resolution on these kinds of matters. So this is an interesting little wrinkle in the DMCA where essentially they reverse field and can t force themselves to get a better position than they might otherwise have in a kind of normal infringement case. Um, and I think that's all I wanted to talk about in respect to the DMCA. Uh, so uh, just kind of in summary, what we've got here is we've got an act which is well-intentioned, uh, which is designed to keep the internet uh, a place that we all want it to be. Um, but it's a it's an act that, like other acts, is not uh, is not necessarily perfectly written. And it does potentially permit the kinds of actions that we've seen in respect of Reach and Ford and Stardock and Star Control Origins. Uh, and some of you are going to look at this and say, hey, maybe they're in the right. Uh, and they might be legally. I have my doubts, as you can tell from this video. And I think that in general, the right way to adjudicate these things is through a court system and not through an automated process where you have set up the entire, the entire legal framework to incentivize the companies to essentially respond to these kinds of things. I think you have to be very careful about situations like this in terms of incentivizing the parties from either doing or not doing certain things. And certainly if this is permitted to persist in a fashion where the court ultimately comes down and says this was perfectly fine, there's no penalties because they had a reasonable or at least ambiguously good faith belief that they did have this ability, even if it comes out on Stardock's side in the future, which I suspect it will, then you incentivize folks in the future to do this kind of thing. And that's really a philosophical question in terms of I can't tell you what, how you should feel about that. I can tell you how I feel about that, which is there are proper ways to use the legal system and there are improper ways. And when you have these actions that kind of go fully to the margins, the extremes of what may be permitted under the 
statutory rubric that has been put before you, you wind up hurting it for everybody. You wind up setting bad precedent because if the court does have to smack you down, maybe that makes it harder on somebody that has a legitimate claim. And if the court fails to smack you down, maybe that makes it harder on future content providers because they have to deal with more and more, maybe not fully bad faith claims, but certainly very close to that line. And when you are dealing with those kinds of things, you really have to consider the various constituent parties, whether or not you want to uh, require them to go through separate hoops to get their content out there or to protect their content in the case of the Reese and Ford side of the spectrum. And it's a very difficult question. But I certainly, I saw this article, I saw these cases, I saw this pop up on my Twitter this morning, and I wanted to talk about it with you a little bit because it is a virtual legality type concept. It is one that is not settled law. It is one that I don't think has been addressed in the video game marketplace before. And while it's a fascinating question from the purely academic lawyer side of things for me, I do worry about the potential ramifications for content creators in the future. I think the DMCA should be looked at again by our legislature pretty much as soon as possible, but certainly on their list of things to do. And I think there are tweaks that can be made, fixes that can be made that make sure that if Reach and Ford are really aggressed against, that they have a system that they can use to make sure that their interests are protected, that if Star Control and Stardock are aggressed against, that they have a system that validly protects their interests and their measures as well, Um, which is all a long way of saying, I hope this was illuminating as to how the Digital Millennial Copyright Act works. I hope this was illuminating as to what is happening with respect to Toys for Bob and Reach and Ford and Stardock and Star Control Origins. Uh, I wish I could tell you with specificity, uh, you know, how this was going to go down, how this was going to play out. I think Star Control Origins is a great game that is clearly a spiritual successor to Star Control 2, but does not, to my eye, infringe upon the Star Control 2 copyrights that it appears that Reach and Ford hold. But at the end of the day, uh, the legal system is a sledgehammer with which to deal with these issues. And like I've said a number of times in the past, the ideal solve for these things is negotiation, is discussion between parties. Because basically at the end of the day, when you go through a big giant lawsuit, when you go through DMCA takedowns, when you deal with all this stuff, mostly you wind up paying the lawyers. Uh, and as much as I like billable time, as much as I like giving good advice and talking through issues with people with, uh, from a legal standpoint or otherwise, it's best for everybody involved to come to business decisions, to come to business dealings that are mutually agreed upon without getting some judge who has to come up to speed on all of these issues all at once uh, to make the determination for you. Uh, So that was virtual legality for this New Year's Day, uh, January 1st, 2019. Again, I didn't really expect it, uh, but I hope it was helpful. I hope it was interesting to those of you who have hung on for this long. Uh, This is my channel, Hogue Law Business Law Firm. We talk a lot about uh, video games, software, information technology, and virtual legality. We have some game reviews. I've started a new postmortem series where I essentially just talk about the pop culture things uh, that I've watched, that I've enjoyed, and hopefully we can have some good content conversations about those. It's in general a potpourri of the things that I'm interested in, the things I'm seeing in legal and business, and some of the stuff that I'm dealing with in uh, my day job as a business lawyer in Northville, Michigan. Uh, So again, please like, subscribe, leave a comment, give me all the feedback that you have, and thank you so much for watching. Have a very happy new year.